King Philip's War was a disaster for Puritan New England. Something like one in 16 of its fighting age male population lost their lives in the conflict. Half the towns in New England were damaged or destroyed. It would take a generation to recover from the property losses and the economic losses associated with the war. Nathaniel Philbrook in his book Mayflower, A Story of Courage, Community, and War, says that in terms of the percentage of population killed, the English had suffered casualties that are difficult for us to comprehend today. During the 45 months of World War II, the United States lost just under 1% of its adult male population. During the Civil War, the casualty rate was somewhere between 4 and 5%. During the 14 months of King Philip's War, Plymouth Colony lost close to 8% of its men. That makes King Philip's War the, the bloodiest war per capita in the history of the United States. But if the war was a catastrophe for Puritan New England, it was an absolute apocalypse for the native peoples of southern New England. As Philbrick points out, of a total native population of approximately 20,000, at least 2,000 had been killed in battle or died of their injuries. 3,000 had died of sickness and starvation. A thousand had been shipped out of the country as slaves, while an estimated 2,000 eventually fled to either the Iroquois to the west or to the Abenakis to the north. Overall, the Native American population of southern New England had sustained a loss of somewhere between 60 and 80 percent. Philip's local squabble with Plymouth Colony had mutated into a region-wide war that, on a percentage basis, had done nearly as much as the plagues of 1616-1619 to decimate New England's native population. That kind of catastrophic loss is incomprehensible. It really is a number that, that you can't truly wrap your head around. The native populations didn't disappear. There are Wampanoags in Massachusetts to this day. There were praying towns that, that remained after King Philip's War, uh, the most famous being the Stockbridge town, where the uh, Stockbridge militia would uh, contribute fighting men to Rogers Rangers in the French and Indian War and serve the American cause in the War of Independence until their military force was basically destroyed in a battle in what is now part of New York City. But what had been a biracial state in Plymouth and Massachusetts and Connecticut, Rhode Island, prior to King Philip's War, was no longer that. It was completely dominated by the English. And there were knock-on effects uh, that, that lasted for a long time. There are those who believe that the hysteria of the Salem witch trials was a sort of a ripple effect of the traumas of King Philip's War, triggered anew by 
conflict on the northern New England frontier in the 1690s. I think there's a pretty strong case that some of the, the fear and the paranoia and the hysteria that uh, manifested itself in the Salem witch trials can, in fact, be traced, at least in part, to a societal trauma of the scale of King Philip's War. From a military standpoint, the war adhered to the paradigm that I've mentioned before that uh, history podcaster Dan Carlin has presented, which is that, that the side that prevailed was the side that could take a punch. From a purely tactical standpoint, the Indians performed very well during King Philip's War and uh, were very effective in ambushing and creating very high casualties for the English militia troops that they encountered. But the English could take a punch. They could absorb damage and loss and continue to field troops and the Indians could not. So even if the Indians took casualties at a lower rate than the English militia and prevailed in battle, the losses that they did take, they couldn't sustain. And that became clearer and clearer through the course of the war. And ultimately, the side that could take a punch prevailed. Now, this begs a question as to whether the rebellion of Metacomet's people, which spread to the Nipmuc and the Narragansett, ever really had a chance of succeeding. And uh, it seems unlikely. The, the rebellion came off prematurely, and had Metacomet been able to build alliances stealthily and uh, create a coordinated attack across New England in 1676, as he had apparently planned to do or hoped to do, they might have been able to push English settlement back in a more long-lasting, if not permanent, sense. It's hard to, to picture a scenario in which they could have taken Boston, for example, and, and truly pushed the English settlers into the sea. But they might have been able to carve off a, a native state that would have lasted longer and, uh, and had more power and security in the face of English settlement, had that rebellion been conducted in the manner that, that Metacomet had envisioned. Um, honestly, I, I don't think that that really had a chance of happening. The rebellion came off prematurely for a reason, uh, and that reason is that, that Metacomet never really had uh, solid control of his, his own people, much less a significant amount of influence with the Nipmuc and the Narragansett. Douglas Leach notes in Flintlock and Tomahawk that it has long been recognized that Philip was not the great leader he was once assumed to be. 
The struggle of 1675-1676 bears his name because he started it, and during those fateful months of war, he was accepted as a symbol of Indian resistance to the white men. But once the conflict had spread beyond the bounds of Plymouth Colony, Philip lost his control of the situation. I would argue that he never really had control of the situation. Other tribes and other leaders began to fight against the English, and they had their own ideas and their own ambitions. There is no evidence that Philip ever exercised supreme command over the various warring tribes. Instead, he seems to have sunk into the position of a leader among many leaders. So far as we can tell, he played no major part in the great battles which occurred after the summer of 1675. Some writers have even charged him with cowardice, although it is difficult to see how a coward could have retained the loyalty of so many brave warriors. That's accurate. We saw the way Philip sort of disappeared from the scene through several episodes of this podcast. His best shot at uh, really exerting influence in the campaigns that uh, bore his, his name was destroyed when the Mohawk attacked his people and killed 400 of them. And, and that really was the decisive blow in the war. Philbrick rightly assesses the military weakness that was fundamental to Metacomet's failures and the decisiveness of the action of New York Governor Andros and the Mohawks in uh, really destroying the last best chance that he had. In the end, the winner of the conflict was determined not by military prowess, but by one side's ability to outlast the other. The colonies had suffered a series of terrible defeats, but they had England to provide them with food, muskets, and ammunition. The Indians had only themselves, and by summer they were without the stores of food and gunpowder required to conduct a war. If Philip had managed to secure the support of the French, it might all have turned out differently. But the sachem's dream of a French Poconocet alliance was destroyed when, at New York Governor Andros's urging, the Mohawks attacked him in late February. The Puritans never admitted it, but it had been Andros and the Mohawks who had determined the ultimate outcome of King Philip's war. And for the next hundred years, the template of conflict would shift, and it was only in alliance with France that native peoples had a real shot at resisting the British. I even include Pontiac's rebellion in that assessment, because even though the French were formally off the scene and had been defeated by the British in the French and Indian War, the Native rebels under Pontiac, or uh, lied to Pontiac, were still receiving some supplies and some, some ammunition from French traders. In the American Revolutionary War era, the roles shifted a little bit. Um, the British became the allies of the Native peoples in resisting uh, American encroachment. But without a source of arms and ammunition, and also food supplies and other supplies, basically the logistics of war, no native peoples had a, a real shot at resisting the encroachment of first the English and then 
the Americans. Philbrick references this in one of his, his notes in Mayflower, referring to the book by Fred Anderson and Andrew Caton, The Dominion of War, Empire, and Liberty in North America. By the 1720s, nothing could have been clearer than that any native people who wished to defend its autonomy needed a European ally, an arms supplier, to do so. In every clash between colonists and natives, from Metacomet's War to the destruction of the Yamases, what weighed decisively in favor of the English colonies was not the martial skill of the militia, which was mostly negligible, but rather that the colonists had the ability to replenish exhausted stocks of arms and ammunition and food, while the Indians, except for those who had a European ally to supply them, did not. So for the next century plus, both the English and the French would maneuver in the attempt to gain native allies and auxiliaries, while the native peoples worked diplomatically to determine which European ally would best serve their interest, the French or the British, or the British or the Americans. Um, in, a, in a couple of instances, the Spanish came into the equation in the, uh, the southern colonies. And that was the way things played out. And it all really revolved around the native people's needs for a steady supply of firearms and ammunition. Douglas Leach offers this final commentary on the tragedy of Metacomet and the Wampanoag. Philip's whole career as head of the Wampanoags is the story of a proud man embittered by the humiliations imposed upon him through superior strength. He may have been driven to plan his uprising by a final conviction that war was the only chance of salvation for his people, but in taking this course, he himself sealed their doom. The uprising began prematurely and was poorly organized and soon escaped from Philip's control. He had undertaken a project that was far too big for his strength and ability. In effect, he became its victim rather than its leader, swept along on the tide of events which eventually brought him to his own tragic death. That's an accurate assessment, but it raises larger questions because a similar scenario played itself out over and over and over and over again across the continent as Native peoples tried to figure out how to cope with what became an increasingly relentless encroachment by European-American settlers into their lands. Fighting was often hopeless. Accommodation didn't seem to work. Either way, they were overwhelmed. And, you know, it's a bias, a personal bias, I suppose. But we tend to admire the Native leaders who, who stood up and fought and went down fighting, or at least fought until there was no more fight left in them. Metacomet, Tecumseh, Blue Jacket, Crazy Horse, Cochise, Geronimo, those are the men that we remember because they resisted. And while Metacomet certainly was not 
the most capable among that list of, of native leaders. I think that he deserves at least the respect that we can give to a man who, who stood and fought. And uh, in the words of Emiliano Zapata, decided that it was better to die on his feet than to live on his knees. King Philip's War also established the, the value of the ranging way of war, as we discussed in the previous episode. I do believe that Benjamin Church deserves his status as America's first ranger. And lessons learned from frontier fighting in King Philip's War did transfer down the generations to through a variety of, of New England ranging corps and uh, were repeated in other frontiers across the country. One of the lessons learned from King Philip's War was the value of Native scouts and allies, and that played out repeatedly across the continent all the way to the final Apache Wars in Arizona and northern Mexico when Apache scouts were employed to run down the last Chiricahua militants under Geronimo. So I think that's where we'll leave the legacy of King Philip's War, a short, savage conflict that set the template for many things to come, both in terms of military practice and the psychology both of Native peoples and of the European American colonizers. Our next, uh, our next trail is going to be a little different than uh, what I had anticipated. I had planned to just sort of follow from King Philip's War into King William's War and Queen Anne's War and the, the early 18th century conflicts in New England. But, uh, and, and I do plan to return to those. Uh, those are, are very important and little understood conflicts. But uh, as I told the Frontier Partisans patrons earlier this month, my uh, following on the trail of Lewis and Clark uh, around the mouth of the Columbia River in Astoria earlier this month really uh, kind of bit me with a, a, uh, a bug to tell the story of George Drurier, who was the hunter and interpreter for the Corps of Discovery, the Lewis and Clark Expedition, a very, very remarkable frontier partisan of French and Shawnee descent, critical man in the success of the expedition, and a man who, along with John Coulter, could be regarded as the first of the Trans-Mississippi Mountain Men. So we're going to, to take a side trail uh, in the next few weeks, and uh, I will recount the story of George Drurier. Uh, it'll probably be a two-parter, I'm thinking. Uh, one part, the first part being uh, 
a exploration of his work with the Corps of Discovery, and then the second part describing his uh, post-Lewis and Clark work with Manuel Lisa and the uh, efforts to establish a, a trading fort on the Missouri River, which uh, ultimately led to Dreer's uh, gruesome but epic death at the hands of the Blackfeet. So I'm going to be doing some reading and uh, refreshing myself on, on that story for the next couple of weeks, and then uh, we'll return with a two-parter on George Druyer, and then uh, then head back towards New England for uh, for some more of the ranging way of war. Speaking of the Frontier Partisans patrons, I would like to welcome Matthew Campbell and thank Bridger Larson, Larry Richardson, Bob Buckholtz, Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godsiff, Jerry Nunnally, El Randolito, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwertfeger. Um, your support is what keeps this elect- the electronic campfire going, and uh, literally couldn't uh, couldn't do this without you. And uh, so your support is very much appreciated. If you're interested in becoming a patron, the link will be, as it always is, with the show notes. And uh, we'll link up with George Dreer and Merrick Weather Lewis and William Clark in a couple of weeks, and I'll see you down the trail. <laughs>